You're listening to Penguin, live at the London Palladium, showcasing some of the wonderful, diverse voices from across the Penguin Random House group. Creative voices are the ones that enthrall readers with new worlds, introduce them to beloved characters, and bring out emotions and thought. Please welcome to the stage the creative double act, that is, Tom and Giovanna Fletcher. Well, uh, we'd like to start by saying welcome to Marriage Counselling Live at the London Palladium. Yeah, um, in today's session, the first bit of advice we're going to give you is do not write a book with your other half. No. No, and if you do decide to write a book with your other half, don't commit to it being a trilogy. Why? Why did we do this? Um, and uh, actually, Tom Weldon, when we, uh, when we signed uh, the contract, he said to me, congratulations, I'm so pleased you're sharing your divorce with us. <laughs> so we'd like to officially announce our separation today. <clears throat> you're <laughs> witness to this. Uh, no, we are, um, we're here to talk about uh, our book that we've written together called Eve of Man. It's the first uh, in a trilogy. Um, and uh, it's been about a five-year process so far since first coming up with the concept. And uh, I think G's going to tell you where the idea first came from. Yeah, so I was around a friend's house who just had a baby, and I was just loving all the newborn cuddles. And, uh, and she just said to me how everyone in her NCT group, they'd all had boys. I thought, wow, that's am well, how amazing is that? Everyone had had boys. And I came home and I said to Tom, everyone had boys. And it was one of those things, it sparks of a discussion, you start Googling things, why does it happen, you know? And we worked out, I think there's something like 52% of, uh, of uh, people, children born are boys and 48 girls. And we're like, why? How does nature sort that out? How does it know what's going on and how it, you know, balance out that boys with her yeah, and the girls? Yeah, and a discussion on, you know, did, why didn't you ever get days where all boys are born? You know, has that ever happened? Does that ever happen? Could that happen? And if it did happen, you know, could it happen for a week? What if it happened for a year? And what if it happened for more than that? You know, we, when would we get to the point where we're looking at the extinction of the human race because Mother Nature is denying us new mothers? And we both looked at each other and thought, there's a book in this. <laughs> and, I uh, want it. No, I want it. Let's <laughs> write it together. <laughs> um, and that was, the, uh, that was the kind of the beginning, uh, which was about five years ago. And, um, and, you know, then we kind of developed the story. We decided it was going to be a trilogy, so... Um, uh, basically, our story takes place, um, it's set in the near future, and no girls have been born for 50 years, and uh, we follow the story of the first girl born uh, as she turns 16. So she has become the most famous uh, person on the planet. She's the most significant person uh, in the world, and the future of humanity uh, is uh, her responsibility. It's all I resting on her say, shoulders. Actually, when we announced this book and announced that that was the premise, we did have a few tweets and a few comments saying, wait... Does that mean that Eve's mum was over 50? <gasps> what? <laughs> We're like, that still happens now. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, so, uh, and, you know, Eve lives in this kind of very controlled world and, uh, and the heart of Eve of Man is essentially a love story, an unconventional love story, which is where my character comes into it. And so we decided early on that we would write this book uh, in first person from the perspective of two characters. Because really... That's the easiest way to do it. If you're going to write a book together and not kill each other, I think use your creative voices. <laughs> <laughs> it's all about creative voices. Yeah. Use them wisely. <laughs> yeah. Write two separate books and just smash them together at the end. Yay, it works! 
so I write, Eve uh, is written by G in first person and, uh, and I write um, the character Bram. And so Eve lives in a very kind of controlled environment. She doesn't know exactly what's going on in the, in the outside world. We learn that through Bram's character as they, um, uh, as they kind of fall in love. Um, and so our writing process, you know, we've both been writing books separately for a number of years. Um, me writing children's fiction, Javan writing women's fiction. And so it feels really nice that we're writing a new genre together. Um, but we both have very different writing very techniques. Very different, very, very different. Yeah. I like to, you know, come up with an idea that I absolutely love, come up with the, third, like the, third, the first third, and then just let my character fly. Just go, yeah, just, just, just what are you going to do now? Which is a nice way of saying she has no idea what's going to happen. <laughs> that is not true. I have a dream of the character <laughs> I take it. Um, Whereas Tom likes to plan every single beat. Yeah, I like to know what's going to happen yeah. at the end. Um, and, <laughs> but we, we basically, we realised very early on that you know, writing a book together, you really need to plan. Uh, and so we did a lot of planning for Eve of Man. It's a trilogy, so we had to plan the, you know, the, uh, the story of three books. And we basically worked backwards from there, getting um, kind of more detailed as we got nearer to the, uh, the, the first book. And then we basically just plastered our writing rooms in pictures, like, a lot of visual references, so we knew... It was like a crime scene, investigation room. Yeah. You know, like different faces, different locations. <laughs> uh, and we basically... So we knew exactly what all the characters looked like. There were photos of actors and friends and... Uh, and, you know, places, you know, really trying to build this world visually so that we knew there was, um, you know, consistency across our writing. Even though, uh, despite doing all of that, we still, the amount of times we had to say to each other, what colour eyes has Bram got Even again? Even in the page proofs. Even in the page proofs, <laughs> we were like, seriously, what, what is this? <laughs> what are we doing here? Um, but uh, that was, you know, a huge part of the process um, for us with Eva Man was yeah. the planning. Um, and then it was kind of, the, the first draft was relatively straightforward. We basically went through um, chapter by chapter alternating the book. So G started, we discussed what G was going to write, what was going to happen in chapter one. G went away and, and wrote that. And, uh, and then I read it and we discussed it, if there were any changes. And then uh, we discussed what I was going to write. I'd go away and write my chapter. And, and we just went through the book like that. And we got to the end and thought, wow, that was all right. Well, I'm still married. One, there was only one point where we had a slight disagreement where I'd written something and Tom was like, no, you've taken it too far. Too, like, no, it's just not even unbelievable. You're like, it's too much. I was like, okay. So I took it out. I'd, I, I'd never delete anything. I'd never delete big sections, but I deleted that whole chapter. I was like, fine, I'll trust you on this one. It's, it's a joint effort. I must listen. And, uh, and then literally a week later, what do you think happened? He'd written it in to his section. He'd taken my idea, popped into his section. Yeah. It's okay though, the editors were on my side and they, they said too much. Yeah, I got it now. It's because you inspired me. It was inspiration. Yeah, I don't know, I, I've got an idea. I don't know where it's come from. Yeah. Is that the whole of your career, just nicking ideas? <laughs> God, honey, what is this? <laughs> it's a roast. <laughs> <laughs> Surprise! Um, <laughs> Uh, no, the first draft was relatively um, uh, straightforward, I, I think, though, really. Uh, it was, the edit was the challenge. Just logistically trying to edit a book on two separate documents and, you know, trying to, you know, realise that, oh, this is my bit that I've not written yet and you've written this bit and trying to piece it all together. It was, um, it was quite challenging. Um, but we got there in the end. We we're we're done through. now. Hooray! Until book two. Yeah. <laughs> and then book three. <laughs> Um, but no, it's been um, it's been really exciting. It's amazing for us to uh, to work on this together. You know, we've um, it's I, I realised actually. Care, isn't it? What's that? Sorry. It's great for childcare. For childcare. Well, yeah, because whoever's writing 
gets to write and the other one gets to look after the kids. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's That's really right. good. <laughs> um, this is a plus. <laughs> it's been amazing. It's been great fun. You know, we've, um, we've loved writing this book with each other. And um, so uh, thank you for, for giving us the opportunity to write books. We both love it. And, uh, and long We're working continue. with a bigger team at Penguin as well, because they've kind of given us a greater team to do it, which is great. It's like we've got the superpowers. Yeah, it's an army. Yeah. Uh, so uh, thank you very much. Thank you very much for having us today. And um, enjoy the rest of your this day. This marriage counselling session is over. <laughs> thank you very much. Bye. Audiobooks are another great way of bringing a creative voice to life. Here's Michael Sheen reading from La Belle Sauvage, The Book of Dust. Volume 1. Put it in your insidest pocket, Asta whispered. Malcolm put the acorn into the inside breast pocket of his jacket and then sat down very carefully. He was trembling. They were arresting him, he whispered. They weren't police. No, but they weren't robbers. They were sort of calm about it, as if they were allowed to do anything they wanted. Just go home, said Asta, in case they saw us. They weren't even bothering to look, said Malcolm. But he agreed with her. They should go home. They spoke quietly together while he paddled quickly back towards Duke's cut. I bet he's a spy, she said. Could be. And those men, CCD, shh. The CCD was the consistorial court of discipline, an agency of the church concerned with heresy and unbelief. Malcolm didn't know much about it, but he knew the sense of sickening terror the CCD could produce through hearing some customers once discuss what might have happened to a man they knew, a journalist. He had asked too many questions about the CCD in a series of articles and had suddenly vanished. The editor of his paper had been arrested and jailed for sedition, but the journalist himself had never been seen again. We mustn't say anything about this to the sisters, said Asta. Especially not to them, Malcolm agreed. It was hard to understand, but the consistorial court of discipline was on the same side as the gentle sisters of Godstow Priory, sort of. They were both parts of the church. The only time Malcolm had seen Sister Benedicta distressed was when he'd asked her about it one day. And now these are mysteries we mustn't inquire into, Malcolm, she'd said. They're too deep for us. But the Holy Church knows the will of God and what must be done. We must continue to love one another and not ask too many questions. Well, the first part was easy enough for Malcolm who was fond of most things he knew, but the second part was harder. However, he didn't ask any more about the CCD. It was nearly dark when they reached home. Malcolm dragged La Belle Sauvage out of the water and under the lean-to at the side of the inn and hurried inside, his arms aching, and raced up to his bedroom. Dropping his coat on the floor and kicking his shoes under the bed, he switched on the bedside light while Asta struggled to pull the acorn out of the insidest pocket. When Malcolm had it in his hand, he turned it over and over, examining it closely. Look at the way this is carved, he said, marveling. Try opening it. 
He was doing that as she spoke, gently twisting the acorn in its cup without any success. It didn't unscrew, so he tried harder and then tried to pull it, but that didn't work either. Try twisting the other way, said Asta. That would just do it up tighter, he said. But he tried, and it worked. The thread was the opposite way. I never seen that before, said Malcolm. Strange. So neatly and finely made were the threads that he had to turn it a dozen times before the two parts fell open. There was a piece of paper inside. I'm Michael Sheen, and it was my privilege to read the audiobook of La Belle Sauvage, The Book of Dust, Volume 1. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, it is an enormous pleasure to introduce to you one of our greatest creative voices, Mr. Philip Pullman. Hello. Hello, Michael. That's quite a few people. Very nice to meet face to, to face. You. I've heard your voice so many times. And, ah, uh... well, yes, and I've read your words so many times. <laughs> um, we don't have long, so I want to get straight into it. I would like to, first of all, know, um, how soon did you know that you were going to return back to the world of Lyra and Oxford and his dark materials? Was that something that was in your mind when you wrote the first trilogy? No, it certainly wasn't. In fact, I declared um, uh, vigorously that I was not going to write the Lyra saga, and it wasn't going to go on and on and on. But when I wrote, uh, I think in about 2004, 2005, a little book called Lyra's Oxford, and I met a character in that book. This is a short story, really, in a, in a little red book. When I met one of the characters in that book, I thought, ah, oh, he's got something about him. I wonder what I can do with him. And that seed must have been planted and slowly germinated, and eventually I realised there was a story there, and I, it was going to be one book. And then... He was getting a bit big for one book, so I was going to be two books. And then it just grew and grew into three books. Mm. And did you always know that it would be Malcolm yes. who would become the hero? Of... Yes. Um, there was something about him which caught my attention. I don't know what it was, um, but as soon as I realised he'd been brought up in an inn, he was the innkeeper's son. I, my, my great friend at school was um, in the same situation, and I, I met a lot of people. This was a little pub in North Wales. And um, it's such a mixture of people there. And I thought, well, there's a very good setting. And um, it's also, it's on the river in Oxford. And Oxford is a very watery city with um, rivers and canals and mill streams and all sorts of things going through it. And I thought it would be interesting to look at the city from that angle, from that perspective, mm. rather than from the rather grand um, perspective of colleges and mm. the university. Yeah. And has the writing of the new books been influenced by what's been going on in the world in the 20 years since we last met everyone? Well, a lot has gone on, hasn't it? And um, it's hard not to be influenced by that. Yes, I think it has, but not, not in the sense that, oh, yes, I can do a story about Iraq or something. Mm. Um, just in the sense of new moral perspectives opening up, and new moral gulfs, indeed, opening up below us in the, in the conduct of our, our leaders. Um, mm. And we can see things that weren't necessarily visible then. So, uh, yeah, as a citizen, I think one is concerned about the way things are going. Um, and that inevitably influences what you write. It does what I write, anyway. Mm. So, well, talking of influences, um, we're talking about creative voices here yeah. today. Um, your voice was one of the formative influences and creative voices for me mm -hmm. uh, when I read the first book, Soul. 
Who were the, the big influences for you as you were growing up and as a young man? Well, I think it, was, I think it would have to be poetry. I loved poetry from my earliest years. Um, uh, Hiawatha, things with a strong rhythm and a strong metrical sense. Uh, Kubla Khan, The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. I remember being read The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner when I must have been eight mm. uh, at school. And um, it gripped me and fascinated me and terrified me and intoxicated mm. me like nothing else. So for the first, um, first part of my, my, my life, which is my creative life, it was poetry. Mm. Um, only later did I start thinking about novels as something I might write. Mm. I did try, try, try to write poetry, try to write songs. Really? This was, <laughs> this was the 1960s and everybody had a guitar and everybody was Bob Dylan. <laughs> and um, I remember very vividly busking in the um, Seashell Cafe in Puthali. <laughs> um, and I was singing um, When the Ship Comes In, that wonderful Bob Dylan song. And the, the reason for Bob Dylan's greatest success, the reason I haven't had quite the um, <laughs> impact on the world that he had, is entirely due to the fact he had a better harmonica holder than mine. Ah. Because my harmonica <laughs> fell off halfway through this damn song. <laughs> and I had to, <laughs> had to give up. But uh, Michael, can I ask you something? When you, I, I loved your reading of the book. Um, when you're preparing a reading like that, how do you... Do you hear the voice before you actually start voicing it? Well, I was saying to you earlier that one of the hardest things about preparing to read, to do an audio book, is that, I mean, I read this book first knowing that I was going to do the audio book of it. So it changes the way you read the book because I couldn't just relax into it and read it. If our chapter starts and there are two Norwegians having a discussion, <laughs> I'm like, how am I going to do that? I can barely do one, let alone two talking to each other. Um, so that sort of goes through your head a little bit. Um, so you, I'm slightly uh, uh, restricted by my own restrictions in a way. Mm. You know? So if I know that I'm going to do two Norwegians, then one is essentially going to have a high voice and the other one's going to have a low that's voice. Right, yes. And that's about <laughs> as far as I go. Um, but with someone like... Uh, that's fine when it's sort of, you know, characters who come in for one chapter. But for a character like Malcolm, mm. um, and, and in some ways even more complicated, a character like Alice. Yes, indeed. Because you, I know that the story is going to be carried through Malcolm yeah. and he's the emotional heart of it. He's a young lad, you know. <clears throat> you don't want... To have someone talking like that all the way through, which Very is just going to ruin it. Yeah, so exactly. how do you find something that is authentic to the character, yeah. but also something that doesn't feel too forced for the audience to listen to? So well, that's you manage marvelously well, and I'm, I'm just making a six Italians. Next <laughs> <time>. <laughs> I know. There's a, scene, there's a scene in the pub as well, in the inn, yeah. where suddenly there's like 20 people. I mean, it gets to the point where you're like, right, this one's going to have a cold, <laughs> and this one's. <laughs> Just going to be slow, and the other one's going to yeah. be quick. Like, it's really as basic as that, yeah. really. Um, well, I can't let St. David's Day go. It's St. David's Day. Happy mm. St. David's Day, everyone. Uh, you have a lovely red tie on, uh, mm. I presume, to celebrate St. David's Day. Um, I thought I was going to be the only person here with a tie, but I see that Ben McIntyre had a three-piece tweed suit and a tie. <laughs> so I lost that one. Yeah. Um, now, you grew up partly in, in North Wales. In North Wales, yeah. Um, could you uh, say that the, the North Wales landscape, the Welsh culture, had much of an influence on you growing up? Yes, it certainly did. Um, I spent my years... When I was 11, I went to, we went to, my family went to um, Llanbedder, which is near Harlech, 
on the coast of Ardudui, and I spent the next 10, 12 years there. So I, it was all my, my formative years yeah. as a teenager, learning to, learning to read poetry, learning to write, all, all that stuff happened to me in Wales. Mm. Um, and it was certainly the landscape. It's, not, it's part of the Snowdonia National Park, but it's not Snowdonia with those big, right, jagged mountains. Mm. It's, it's slightly lower hills, um, green rolling hills, mm. um, which are still pretty high when you see them from the seashore. But the, the combination of the sand dunes, the sea, uh, the, the morva behind the, the sand dunes, mm. and, and the, the hills beyond that had an enormous effect on me. Mm. I loved it. I love it still. Um, so it's probably the landscape in some way that's, um, um, that informed the way I feel about landscape, even though the landscape mm. in this book is, um, you know, Oxford and uh, the Thames. Yeah, because the Welsh storytelling tradition is, is quite distinct from... The English storytelling oh, tradition, or the Irish yes. or the Scots, yeah. I'm just reading now a very interesting, fascinating new translation of the Mabinogi, ah. um, which is um, the best I've ever read. And now I'm, I'm trying to tell you about it. I've forgotten the name of the poet who translated <laughs> it. But it's very good, believe me. Yeah. Um, well, uh, we don't have long. So can, what can you tell us about the new book, the next book? At what stage is it at? Will Malcolm and Alice be back? Um, well, the next book... It's an odd sort of shaped story, this trilogy. It is one story, but the first part of it is set ten years before the events of his Dark Materials, and the second and the third will be sent ten years, spelt ten years after it. So um, there's 20 years between La Belle Sauvage and The Secret Commonwealth, which is going to be the title of the second book. Um, it's, the second book is already written, but I'm now editing it, which means cutting and cutting and cutting. I love that. <laughs> Crossing out, cutting, throwing away. It's marvellous. Um, and that will um, possibly be ready to be published at the end of this year, but probably beginning of next year. Right. And then I'll get on with the third book. Uh -huh. um, it's, uh, it, it is an odd-shaped story, but I'm finding it works very well. And it's, I think it'll be interesting for people who knew Lyra as an 11-, 12-year-old um, to see her both as a baby of six months and then later as a student of 20 mm. or 21. Uh, it was certainly interesting to me to see how she develops and things that happen to her. Mm. I, I mean, I, I don't know about anyone else, but when I finished the third book of the original trilogy, I felt, I mean, it felt like actual grief. I was, I sort of grieved the end of it. I cared so much about Lyra and Will, obviously. And to, it's very moving to, in, the, in this first book of the new trilogy, to know that she's a baby. I mean, I really care about her, as I'm sure people uh, also do. And the idea of seeing her get older now as well, yeah is incredibly moving and very powerful, I think. Well, it, it, part of that is, involves discovering what demons can do and mm. what, discovering more about the nature of being a demon and being a person with a demon. Um, it's not just a little cuddly animal that you talk to. It's far more complicated than that, uh, as, I'm, as we see in that book and yeah. as we are discovering, I'm discovering in the, in the next two. Yeah. Well, I could talk to you for hours. Um, what an honour it's been to sit here and talk with you. I've thoroughly enjoyed it, as I'm sure everyone has. Please, everybody, give it up for Philip Pullman. <laughs> <laughs>